0: Hello, world. What is up? Welcome back to the Feelings Lab. I'm your host, Matt and For today's episode, we're talking about empathy and digital health. Admittedly, I may be a bit biased, but really enjoying season two so far. Uh, we've taken a couple of pretty big swings, and I've been learning a ton of fascinating stuff. One of our goals has been to take these complex concepts with massive implications for our future, such as compassion in robotics, and explore them through hyper-specific use cases we feel could be emblematic of a larger shift, kind of like the robot companion Moxie from that same episode. It's just the way my brain works. In order to wrap my head around these big ideas and take in the entire field of view, sometimes it helps me to dial in my focus to one real precise point. Uh, And I'm pulling the curtain back a bit tonight, not just to self-congratulate and talk about what a good job I think we're all doing, uh, although kudos team, uh, but because I'm really excited to dig into today's topic by way of discussing the phenomenal work our guest has been doing in pursuit of developing better diagnostic and therapeutic solutions for children living with behavioral health conditions. Uh, when it comes to AI something we keep talking about is scalability and how AI is enabling one to do the job of many and you'll totally hear a bit of that today as we get into some of the amazing new diagnostic tools that uh, um, cognoa is bringing to the market but for me the stuff I'm really excited about and the really cool things tend to happen after diagnosis the new tools techniques and treatments uh, personalized and designed to meet the needs of underserved populations and narrowing further and hopefully one day eliminating the proverbial cracks so many people slip through and now Navigating the healthcare system. Uh, So as per usual, I got a ton of questions. What are some of these new treatments? Uh, How do we know who would benefit most from the techniques? And uh, beyond that, how do we raise awareness that these options are even available? Uh, Another popular refrain on this show, AI is only as smart as the examples we give it. So where are we getting the data from? Should there be privacy concerns surrounding the information? I don't know. I never know. Uh, For these uh, and so many other questions, I do what I would hope any person in a position of ignorance knows well enough to do, and I defer to the experts. Uh, And it just so happens that today, as far as experts go, we have ourselves an embarrassment of riches, people. Uh, Joining me as always, CEO and chief scientist at Hume AI, co-host and dear friend, Dr. Alan Cowan is here. Alan, good to see you, how you doing, buddy? Doing great, good to see you team. Matt very nice uh back once again professor of psychology at uc berkeley and faculty director of the greater good science center season one co-host and the cherry on top of the season two sunday the wonderful dacher keltner is here dacher great to have you back how you doing bud
1: i'm doing well good to see you man
0: fantastic man pleasure as always i'm starting Uh, to wonder
1: why you threw me off as co-host for this episode but for this uh, you this still. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm teasing
0: <laughs> Dacker, you can dictate your title. I will put whatever you want in the lower third. Officially second co-host. And as for today's guest and third co-host, he's Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Psychiatry, and Biomedical Data Sciences at Stanford Medical School. He has pioneered the use of machine learning and artificial intelligence for fast, quantitative, mm-hmm. and mobile detection of neurodevelopmental disorders in children, as well as the use of machine learning systems on wearable devices such as google glass for real-time ex-clinical therapy his groundbreaking work has garnered numerous awards and accolades including a spot in the top 10 of the world's top 30 autism researchers he's the co-founder of cognoa a company dedicated to creating an unparalleled standard of care and pediatric behavioral health please welcome to the show great pleasure to introduce the great dennis Wallace here dennis my god what a treat thank you so much for making the time sir how you doing
2: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. And I'm now full professor. So, you know, I got to update my bio at some yes.
0: point. Fantastic. <laughs> yes. Congratulations, sir. Happy I'm, to hear it, man. Great. Very, very awesome. All right, guys. Well, uh, no time to waste. Let's get to it. I'm going to try and break, uh, this conversation tonight down into like different sections, diagnosis, uh, treatment and augmentation. So let's start with diagnosis, especially on the heels of the June, uh, 2021 FDA authorization of Cognoa's canvas DX autism diagnosis aid. Dennis, I feel like I got to start with you, man. Uh, first of all, congrats. That's a big deal to get that approval. And, uh, second for Mm -hmm. our listeners, uh, and and yeah, huge deal. Uh, and I don't mean to gloss over that by any stretch. That is massive. And, and so very excited. Um, but my big question uh, kind of set the stage for our listeners and those unaware. I know this is something I've heard you speak about uh, a bunch of times before, but for those that aren't familiar, uh, before we get into how Canvas DX works, just briefly take us back a notch and talk a little bit about uh, some of the pain points in the diagnostic process you and your team identified and, and why you were driven to create this tool in the first place.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest issue has been the long waiting list and the, the, the average age of diagnosis in the United States is like stubbornly hovering at five. It hasn't moved much in, in, a, in a long time, decades, and a lot of that has to do with the way we do it today. The center of care is slow, cumbersome. It's in clinic. It's one-to-one. You know, it's not scalable. It's not repeatable. There's all sorts of issues of quantification and subjectivity. Uh, you know, all of which ultimately can be fixed through Canvas DX, right? So it's faster, it's nimble, it's mobile. Moreover, it can be delivered in pediatricians' offices as opposed to in specialty care clinics, just where these bottlenecks are occurring. So, like, that's the main reason is to break open that bottleneck and get these kids diagnosed as early as possible and make it possible to happen. This phrase of ex clinical is actually conceptualized in Canvas DX to a certain extent because a lot of the data that comes are coming from the parents who are using an app on phone. That delivers information to Cognoa that's operated on by an AI engine and then delivered to the clinician who can make a decision on the spot in real time. So, you know, ultimately, we think it'll fix a lot of these issues with the average diagnosis and start to move that from where it is now, which is like close to five to much lower, closer to two.
0: Wow, got it. So, the question then then becomes right: How do you democratize the process, streamline it, scale it without sacrificing the integrity of the results? And that's what we're looking to do with Canvas DX here: eliminate those barriers. Totally makes sense. I want to get more into unpacking some of the stuff you said and the specifics of how it does that. But uh, before we do, I've read uh, before that this has been a very personal journey for you. A member of your family is autistic, and I'm curious when did you start to first connect the dots and see how machine learning and AI could break down some of these walls and shake this whole thing up and, and solve some of these problems?
2: So my, my background, I'm a computational geneticist. It's sort of an interesting story that I can get into if you're, if you want to know more details, but um, my thesis was nowhere near, my thesis. nowhere near where I am now, which is essentially I worked on the, um, population genetics and evolutionary trajectory of a paleotropical endemic moss that preferentially grows on coconut trees and tropical <laughs> islands in the South Pacific for lots of reasons you can imagine a good choice ultimately. But um, <laughs> that led me to learn a lot about machine learning and computational genetics, computational biology. And uh, meanwhile, my, my, my now, my wife, Abby, I've known her family for a long time. Her sister, Becky has a severe, a severe form of autism, which uh, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've been familiar with for since high school, you know, so we, we spent a lot of time together, ultimately convinced Abby to marry me, but I've known a lot about Becky and, and, the, and the pros and cons of autism and her family since I was 17, 16 years old. Basically. Wow. Wow. Um, so I've always wanted to harness some of those skills to something, you know, important those computational skills that I developed working with Moss. And when I was recruited to Harvard Medical School to start my faculty life, I was able to do that i was able to start to pivot my attention towards this problem and i thought genetics would be the answer right because it's very genetic it's very heritable but we're still working we're still we we still are scratching our heads as to how the genetics play a role and how we can utilize genetics for clinical decision support and for you know for targeting therapy and things like that that's still years from now away from where we are. So I started again, uh, knowing that, going into that, I realized, well, you know, let's look at how the diagnosis is occurring. How are we arriving at these decisions in the first place? Who are the, who are the children that were were diagnosed with autism? So I trained myself on the traditional practices, the standard care by shadowing clinicians and sitting behind one way, you know, mirrors that like are part of the observation rooms or one way glass. It's part of the observation rooms where kids are getting um, assessed for an autism risk and ultimately diagnosed and it was there that I realized that while the process is very hands-on and and the people doing it are wonderful, that it's 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 extraordinarily slow. Yeah, it's also quite artificial. These are scary clinical rooms that they've never seen before, mm-hmm. with a stranger they've never met before. You know, ultimately, you know, so depending on the level of shyness or anxiety the child is experiencing, you start to have like subjectivity shifts occur, which can really influence the actual diagnosis. For sure. And at one point, this is a cool part of the story, which I found kind of baffling. The person um, scoring the child, they score after they do the observation, didn't like all the numbers, and they were leading in the wrong direction, ultimately, in their opinion. So they just changed them and made sure the child was diagnosed. So that was the moment in time where I just said, like, okay, this, this can't be... Good. It's not going to help us with genetics, and it's certainly not going to help these children, you know, get the right get to where they need to go. There has to be some me- there has to be a way to infuse digital yeah. thinking into quantification into this. So that's the journey. It's motivated by my personal story and by just this this whole this whole arena is crying out for yeah. AI solutions.
0: God, it had to make uh, that FDA approval all the more of an, um, like, not just a, a professional victory, but an emotional one as well, like to to, to reach that yeah. point after so many years. That's so amazing, man. Um, this may be a pretty big question. We are a podcast about emotions. Uh, we talk in great length about the universal human experience, how we all process emotions. But I think it's worth exploring. And I'd love to hear, especially from uh, the big brains I got on this show with me tonight. What, what do we know about how emotional behavior differs for individuals with autism? Uh, autism? And, and again, I'm, I'm asking a very large question, but just, um, just to kind of get into the specifics, Alan, or what, what do we know?
1: Well, I'll weigh in. I, th- I don't think we know a whole lot, frankly. I mean, we know yeah. some. We know um, social difficulties. We, there's a, a, a prevailing hypothesis. I'd be curious to hear what Dennis thinks about it, of kind of empathy deficits in autistic kids a lot of it is no offense to the measure done with this thing called eyes uh eyes of the mind i think which i don't think is a valid measure to be quite frank um and dennis's work is revolutionary because you know i too have um autism in my wife's side of the family pretty profound uh and widely distributed and and the parents know something's up right And they know it early. And we know from one of the truisms of child developmental psychopathology is the earlier you get to it, it's just transformative, right? Mm -hmm. And they sense it in their tone of voice. They sense it in eye contact. There are differences in patterns of gaze in autistic uh, toddlers. Um, And so why aren't we gathering those data to start the diagnosis early? And that's why Dennis's work is revolutionary. So we know a bit. Um, we know, you know, patterns of gaze are off, that are different, um, that they don't read eye movements quite as, in a similar fashion as neurotypicals, but yeah. I, do you know more, Ellen or Dennis, or what are you guys thinking about?
3: Well, I mean, yeah, sure. I, I, I did a project once for, for a startup that was looking into behavioral assays for developmental disorders and just look through the literature. And what struck me is that there were all these tests people were conducting in the 60s and 70s, and the effect sizes were just through the roof, but it was like a sample of like 10 people. Um, And then when the samples get larger, suddenly the effect sizes get smaller. And that that led me to believe that we actually don't know as much as we thought we knew. Um, And it led me to believe we need more data. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, that's pretty much where I saw, I saw the reading minds of the eyes task, and there were all these other tasks, different kinds of games and cards and identifying emotions or engaging in different kinds of social interaction or, um, interview behavioral interviews. And, um, I would say that, uh, the, the findings weren't satisfying to me. And what, what seems to be the case is that you kind of, maybe as Dennis was alluding to earlier, you know, it when you see it. Um, You can observe a child's behavior and tell if they have autism. And it seems like that is is a more reliable assessment than any of these uh, supposed tests. Um, And so how do we move forward from there?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the really interesting and exciting thing to me about Dennis's work, because now we've just both said, well, it's one of those, you know, it when you see it things and something that is uh, to use a word we've used a million times on this podcast. So ineffable, how do you then train machines to help you identify it? It's typically a very human thing when we go, I don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see it. So uh, just talk about closing some of those gaps and and jumping over some of those hurdles, Dennis, how do you then uh, employ the use of machine learning and AI to help us? us identify and diagnose this thing that a very smart individuals sit here and go well it's hard to say but we don't know enough but we know when we see it
2: yeah that's a great point in fact clinicians who do routine diagnosis will say to me they can hear which kids have autism yeah. as they walk from their office through the waiting room to the clinical evaluation room and i believe it you know and there is this this there's this thing called the clinical global imp- the clinical global impression that's used by clinicians to make a you know, to make diagnoses, they, they can literally pull the trigger on a CGI diagnostic, basically, which is cool. And it, obviously for me, I think, you know, it harkens back to like Malcolm Gladwell's blink test. There's some, these guys possess this empirical intuition and have the ability to blink and and tell, which kids have autism. What I always wanted to do is figure out how to quantify that and, and provide it to, to non-specialists. It's like, ultimately, when you think about AI and medicine. In a lot of cases, it's going to be scaling specialists. It's going to be scaling the into the intuitive specialist behaviors and abilities to the community settings, to disperse settings, to lower socioeconomic settings, which is so, so, so important, right? To inc- increase diversity and inclusion and everything else, which isn't happening at all today in the autism world, both for diagnostics and for therapeutics, huge disparities there. So. Um, to answer your question, though, I, I think the uh, one thing I just want to be c- like clear for the audience is that AI is not anywhere near it w- where it needs to be to be able to detect automatically autism right. in a video right, or in a sound. But we're getting there, you know, ultimately. So the Cognoa system, the Canvas DX system, does require human inputs and human observations. We've just figured out how to minimize and optimize the amount of human input and observations that are required. And those are essentially vectors that get put together into the equation, essentially. And, and, and then that, and that those vectors combined enable the machine learning system to run to produce scores. But the cool thing also about this is that as we receive those measures, in particular, we receive those measures from independent um, of independent observers operating in parallel, independent iterator reliability becomes possible, something that's not possible today. And we're getting labels essentially generated on time sequence video data that become, you know, obviously powerful potentials for yeah. future AI model development. You indicated earlier that AI is only as smart as the data we give it. And right now we don't have a lot of data on these yeah. kinds of individuals but the more we can succeed with like a system such as canvas dx operationally in the future there's going to be an opportunity to build smarter models that will obviate the need increasingly although probably never entirely for human input in this equation yeah, yeah. and that's good because scaling continues to be you know a thing we have to worry about scaling and of course, you know, then you're going like to issues of security and privacy and AI, you know, like, uh, performance drift and all these things we should be talking about um, and we're very mindful of. But I just wanted to at least say that for now, uh, just to give you an idea of how things work
0: yeah for sure my understanding uh based on what i read and you keep me honest here is uh when it comes to canvas dx there's like three uh forms of of data input there's like a questionnaire that the family fills out uh, a questionnaire the the primary care physician will fill out and then there's the questionnaire completed by a video analyst who reviews i think it's two videos of the child recorded by the family Mm -hmm. and right out of the gate uh just to go back to something you mentioned earlier like the earlier observations they're 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 in these environments where you're not really sure what kind of a reading you're getting it's a scary room, it's a doctor, it's... Unprom- right now we've... Okay, huge jump right there. They're at home. This is where they're in their most comfortable, most natural state. Fantastic. So we've got these two videos, and that goes to the video analyst, and that was the part I was curious about, is um, you know where do you find... Because now you've got to scale that part. You've got to find uh, people that are qualified to analyze those videos, and what are they looking for in those videos, and what kind of training do they have to go through? And I was curious if there was AI enhancing that part of the process in any way, helping them Uh, ingest however many hundreds or so on of videos to kind of go through?
2: Yeah, super great question. I love this topic. The scaling continues to be an interesting problem that we are trying to solve through a series of mechanisms that deploy um, adaptive learning techniques. Essentially, um, we're really trying to identify ways to use um, optimization procedures to serve up the minimal amount of labeled information necessary, you know, for the uh, raters to rate Um, and they are working independently. So Mm -hmm. it's good. So we can get like confirmation of of report from let's say three individuals, which is the the minimum number you need to have a majority rule consensus on the outcome for a particular video, which I think is super important. Mm -hmm. They're operationally working within the context of the video length itself. So they're able to score while it plays, that's good. So it's relatively fast. Now, um, this is not something that right now the FDA is able to approve. But separately, so the video analysts are formal, certified, trained. But we've been experimenting with the ability to mine empathy from citizen scientists that operate mm-hmm. in the crowd on crowdsource platforms like we are, we're all very familiar with. Microworkers, mechanic, Amazon Mechanical Turk, Prodigy. And amazingly, you can find these people. Yeah. And they want to do more interesting things with their, you know, these these sort of micro worker type tasks. And so we've been we, we've been able to essentially invent a process to sort of cast a wide net, identify super recognizers, what we're calling them, who are quite good at these features measurements, seeing these features that we want to see and have mm-hmm. measured and labeled and they do it at scale, and they do it fast, and they do That's it cool. with high efficiency. And we have a couple of papers that have come out very recently documenting their efficacy against clinical standards. And so far, the data suggests that they are as good as a clinician. That's cool. Wow. wow. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, Cognoa has not signed off on this. This is not Canvas DX. So disclaimers, disclaimers, disclaimers. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's kind of interesting to think about that because. Um, there are people that are out there in the world that are really good at this. Yeah. And it's going to include moms and dads and kids with autism. It's going to po- pop pop, you know, probably include humans who have forms of autism and just people who are generally really interested in care a lot. Now they don't necessarily know the task. In fact, we had to make sure in most cases, they didn't know the task at hand. They didn't, cause you don't want to bias the, re- the results. Towards right. The hypothesis. Yeah. So, you know, they're not knowing that they're, they're assessing for autism uh per se but but you can imagine a situation in which that would be possible without biasing the, the inputs so so anyways i i think there's this future in which we could we could do a lot more with this concept of mining empathy from the crowd and having humans do more interesting things that are much more helpful for human health and wellness than what they might be doing otherwise
0: that, uh, that response blew my mind. I did not anticipate that. That's so cool. cool.
1: <laughs> me too.
0: Yeah, man. I was about to turn it over to Decker and Alan to get their response because I was like, that, that really got me, man. That's amazing. I didn't anticipate that. Uh, Alan, Decker, you guys encountered any such a thing in your work before?
3: I just I well, just love the idea of lowering the lift on, on how you process this data um, and, you know, being able to get regular people to process it is one thing. How close are we, though, to potentially having an AI recommend a person get evaluated? You know, we're at the very beginning of the funnel. So nobody has to be able to make the, you know, assessment that this person needs to be checked. Um, but there's somehow there's a pipeline know, out of data that's occurring naturally in the world or through, you know, some sort of relatively low cost or not, not too invasive product or app.
2: And yeah, I, you raise a really good
1: point, yeah. And, yeah, and I think, it you know, you think about the social problems that um, Dennis's work is pointing new avenues toward. I mean, one is uh, self-harm and suicide, you know, so suicide in veterans is, it's the highest young men, highest group that, um, you know, is presenting with suicide and, and they're probably emitting these cues that a lot, that if you crowdsource empathy, you could start to detect it, that other people around them may not have the right language for, right? Yeah. Uh, and may not see it. And so you get to them six months before they're really in, in crisis. And that's what we need, you know, for these kinds of social problems is to return to yeah. kind of this deep wisdom that, that Dennis is talking about. It's it's revolutionary in a lot of ways. Same with kids, like little kids. You know, you, you take your three-year-old to preschool and you kind of know, like, you see the spectrum, right, or the range, and and you know some some kids get into serious trouble. We should know earlier um, through these friendly crowdsourced empathy forms. It, it's powerful.
0: Well, that's one of the you know, Alan. You mentioned how far off are we from an AI that can flag it for us, and then Decker, you you talk about the significance of getting in there as soon as we can. And so I just it's a confluence of all these things that I'm thinking about because you know for anyone we're talking about diagnosis and anyone that's ever watched an episode of house or I don't know, just <laughs> listen to our conversation, you know, it's all about uh, collecting information, identifying symptoms, and then finding a connection, detecting a pattern. And, you know, usually you think the best way to do that is just ask the patient, but we're talking about young children. We're talking 18 to 72 months, you know, what are the most effective ways and, and forms of data collection at that point? And, you know, how can AI and machine learning help us to streamline that process? You know, there what, what do we do in that scenario when they're so, t- so young and, and so small that we can't ask them? We, we can only observe. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, I have thoughts, research thoughts on all, all of this stuff. Like, colleagues of mine um, out of Emory in the Marcus Center have done a lot of work on mm-hmm. eye contact and observations. Mm-hmm. Eye contact exhibited by babies when they're presented with familiar images, like of their mother. And deviations of them being predictive of a future autism diagnosis. Interesting. So there's sort of partial answer to the question: is eye contact going to be every aspect of this? So is it so, in other words, is that gonna be sensitive? Yes, probably probably overly sensitive, non-specific, right? Um, therefore, you get this sort of the question then becomes like, are you are you false alarming too much? And does that false alarm have a negative downstream consequence on the child or the family. And we should think about that and be careful, of course. Um, but sound is another aspect that's interesting. Yeah. There's potentially mm-hmm. some early pre-verbal audio signals that could be utilized per- perhaps in context with, with eye, eye contact kind of measures, non-invasive yeah. baby babble basically yeah. yeah, that could be predictive.
0: Yeah. I'm super curious uh, too. Uh, you know, in, in all the work that you're doing, has that process, and has this process of trying to streamline, of trying to observe, has it revealed symptoms, uh, you didn't even know existed or were looking for? How is this, been, you know, outside of the scope of autism, has, how has this been applicable? And has it revealed, uh, avenues of opportunity and ways that can be used, uh, for all types, uh, of treatments and diagnosis?
2: For, for the developmental spectrum, I think, yes, like there's a number of other developmental delays that are meant that we've been able to find and identify, actually, through some of these techniques, like just global developmental delays, not otherwise specified, speech and language delays. We've worked in Bangladesh where there's a high um, high frequency of stunting in children due to malnutrition, which is an incredibly sad scenario. Mm. The stunting, of course, manifests as many neurodevelopmental conditions. These kids are just not growing and getting enough nutrition to grow the way they need to be growing. And so they have autism and speech and language and a bunch of other stuff. So there is definitely ways to take and adapt everything that we've done for Canvas DX directly to those kinds of problems. Wow. Which starts to expand the reach and find children, perhaps even including dyslexic and complex cases of dyslexia and, and other things of those natures. There's a, there's a whole, this opens up a whole new world too for like how we think about the applications of um, com- like computer vision and how we think about concepts like domain adaptation and transfer learning, stuff that's super popular now and like concepts of like meta learning, low shot, few shot, no shot concepts. Which is all of what we're working on right now, trying to figure out how do we minimize the requirement for input. Yeah. Um, so we can, but without any cost to accuracy, you know, we want to maintain this clinical standard of accuracy that the Canvas DX system hit for the FDA while continuing to iterate on um, the ability to go down in age, even below 18 months, perhaps, perhaps not. I mean, again, I, I'm probably talking too much, but like at some <laughs> level, it doesn't necessarily matter now if the intervention programs that we have are only going to work when they start when they, when they're two. Right. So uh, there's a bit of a gap between detection and intervention. And we want to shrink that gap as much as possible. But we do know if we intervene between two and eight, ideally before six or by six kids are going to progress in ways that are super positive without, compromising neurodiversity it's providing kids skills to thrive the way they want to thrive Mm -hmm. to live the life they want to live
0: yeah yeah that's a that's a great segue to, to kind of move into intervention and treatments and, and, and talk about that a little bit. You know, autism is known to be a spectrum, right? Not a gradient. And I would imagine treatments and intervention exists on a spectrum as well. There's no one size fits all treatment for everybody. How, how do we identify the best treatments and is there a role for machine learning in guiding one towards the best course of care?
2: That's a question for me. I guess, right?
0: I guess, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'll so, listen to anyone who wants to talk to me about this stuff. I don't yeah, know anything. So <laughs> um, you know
2: one, uh, we, we've experimented with this, with uh, wearable augmented reality, with Google Glasses in particular. Mm-hmm.
0: Love that stuff. Perfect yeah.
2: form factor because it's lensless. It's it's easy to ignore the peripheral mo- monitor like in, a, in an instant. It fits on most kids' heads, not all. Some of them didn't work that way, but yeah. um, it provided us with an opportunity to naturalize... To take into the homes some of the aspects of standard therapy that is thought to be and has been proven in certain circumstances to be effective which is essentially teaching kids how to understand emotion sure. and this this gets at the question of you know um affect and effective range and, and you know like, like perception of empathy and things like that but but right now the, the applied behavioral therapy that we use sort of standardizes around the importance of reinforcing the recognition of like the base emotions, the standard universal emotions, the Ekman emotions. Hmm. Happy, sad, surprised, afraid, disgusted, neutral, contempt. <laughs> you're,
0: you're among you're amongst friends here. We're very we've we've talked in great length. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that one I know. That one I got. That one And
2: and and with this, we, we sort of light up the box, the peripheral monitor, when they find a face, which is one aspect of the intervention, which is really great for them. They like, oh cool, I found a face. And then it's immediately providing them with <coughs> what the is telling them. It's a happy face. And we were able to show that this is very efficacious. And though it's is it a one size fits all situation for the particular treatment arena, given that most of these kids suffer from s- suffers maybe the wrong word, lack. The ability at this point in time, when we're trying to intervene to differentiate those faces, then it becomes, yeah, a, kind of a baseline foundation to get started, helps them sort of like, it's, pr- it's essentially a stopgap, a safeguard against loss of opportunities while they're waiting on waiting lists, for example, yeah. like to get access to the standard therapies, but to more directly answer your question. So I'm really excited about that. And I think hopefully soon, some, someday soon, that'll become something out on the market but uh we've been experimenting with an, a, an entirely different game, which is modeled after heads up this game guess called what guess, uh, yeah, guess what yeah. you put the phone on your forehead and the prompt is shown it can be developmental age appropriate like then you can iterate across all verticals you can think of to make it really interesting and engaging for the human who is working with it and, and this is sort of getting to your question like we've envisioned a scenario in which the game deck choices are so are, are super diverse such that they can China select has. among them to almost create their own treatment. You know, where we know something because with some, you know, maybe restrictions and requirements, essentially, as far as ensuring that we deliver a dose that we believe will be minimally viable to have a treatment effect. The rest is kind of their, their choice. And we learn more about them through that than we would ever otherwise learn because we're, we're doing. They're, they're on mobile. They're on app. They're they're playing the game. We're getting game metrics. We're communicating with them through the game. This is Stanford uh, sort of IRB approved protocol at this point, and and we we also learn about how much they play of what and what that means for their their movement. You know their progression towards positive things that we the end like the FDA cares about Nine right. points, like, measure change that is believed to be positive and in the right direction, up into the right, I guess. So ultimately that kind of system enables you the, like, cause it, it can be widely distributed. It enables like a, a wide coverage of diverse humans who have the condition autism to a point where we have enough empirical data to actually know like what works for one type of kid and what, Works for another type of kid. So it becomes prognostic, perhaps, over time. Yeah.
0: Well, that was those two uh, instances I was excited to, to hear talk a little bit more about them and chat about them because one the google glass thing you single-handedly that use case right there like explained to me why google glass needs to exist better than the untold millions they spent on trying to convince me otherwise that was the first time i was like okay now i get it that's a reason for that (laughs) thing to exist that makes sense to me and so i was really thrilled by that man i thought that was such an incredible way to use that technology um but the guess what thing to me was a stroke of genius because yes you have the game element, but you're also solving that problem of there's not a lot of data. So you're, you're, yeah. you're doing two things at once. You're, you're yeah. a, creating a fun a- activity and an educational game that the families can play together. And if they opt in, they can share all of this information that just helps you make everything better as you move forward, which begs the question, and I'm sorry if it feels like I'm picking on you, Dennis, but uh, do you how important do you see gamification moving forward? We had a, a guest a couple of weeks ago talk about uh, gamifying the world. Workforce And just seeing this different energy, this different generation sort of entering the workforce with different expectations. And I'm curious, you know, we have those two examples there. How closely are you guys looking at gamifying all of this moving forward and and adding uh, that sort of dynamic to the process?
2: Yeah, I think it's it's incredibly powerful. I think it's, it's it has to be a large part of the fabric of the future of artificial intelligence and medicine, period. Yeah. Like people want to play games um, and they're engaging and they're fun. And right now the way we play games, yeah, is not all that beneficial, right? I mean, ultimately screen time is a bad thing perhaps for a lot of circumstances, but the kind of games that children tend to gravitate to are the ones that are popularized in, in ways that, um, you know, and and. <laughs> we could, we could talk forever about like, you know, the, whatever, you know, Fortnites and whatever else is of the world, you know, where there's first person shooter type games. And to, to, to steal a quote from a, a friend of mine, Billy Zane, I should have mentioned such an awesome character. I've chatted with us. he cares about, cares about child health. He came, he, his concept is first person healer games. And I'm like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And of course, yeah. then all of a sudden this movie came out, um, uh, what is the name of the movie that has uh, the character from Deadpool in it? Game, um, hmm. That just came out. Anyone? Anyone?
0: Uh, uh, you said Billy uh, Zane, and all I can think of yeah, is the yeah, Phantom. Gosh. I just—I'm lost. I'm—I'm I'm 30 years back. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, no, he—he's a—he's a cool character. Um, sort of inspired me to think a lot about mining empathy and this first-person healer concept. But um, you know, I think games. Have a significant and important role to play in both education and treatment, so sort of health monitoring. Because you can do a lot with it through iterative design, essentially that's adaptive in, in nature over time. That sort of works with the human, that's you know the stakeholder that we want to you know who, who we want to work with, who we want to treat, who we want to educate, um, while building data as you go. Yeah. Yeah, and using that data in real time, and then also using it in the future for all sorts of iterative model design, which I think is super important.
0: Super cool, Alan. Yeah. It looks like you were about to say something. Go for it. <laughs> Sorry,
3: mind's racing. There's a lot of things. Yeah. Right. One thing I wanted to ask is that you know, so you have you have sort of task-based interventions where you gather data in a certain way. Um, I'm also interested in you know where can you funnel somebody into the task-based intervention based on sort of an observation of what's happening in everyday life. If you had, and as a thought experiment, if you had footage of, imagine there's no privacy, you just have 24 hours a day footage of somebody, of a patient, um, what are the critical moments that you look for in that footage? How do you sort it? Um, And can you get an AI to do that or be activated at the right time to ask the right Mm -hmm. questions, to record the right moments in order to funnel people into the right treatment?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, one that we, I, a graduate student and I were just chatting about actually yesterday because we got a bunch of video data um, and we're from the Guess What Gameplay, right, and we're trying to, um, one of the tasks that he's working on, the student is, has been working on, was to, the ability to detect eye gaze through gameplay. So the cool thing about the Heads Up game, I dropped my phone, Is that it's kind of like it it, like creates a structured distance between partner the play the the mom for example and the child. There's only a certain height difference, so you get like pretty reasonable um, coverage of the child's face, and you can see where they're looking. And we can ask questions about can we measure eye gaze and eye contact? The eye gaze is perhaps you know just are they engaging? Like are they making sufficiently um, um, like like a sufficient amounts of like socially motivated facial engagement? which we think is kind of important probably when they're communicating in this pro social game situation. Um, but it's super messy data. Mm. And so the graduate student has been working on just sort of scrubbing it. And as he's doing it, like he basically created a way to look at uh, like a thousand videos and he did it in two hours. I don't know how he did that, but anyways, <laughs> and, um, but he was just really quickly just kind of annotating, annotating, annotating. And, he thinks, and I believe this, that that kind of process can be learned. Like his annotation process can be, tr- can be used to train hmm, an engine right. at the same time.
3: Yeah. And I mean,
2: it's a little bit like Snorkel AI you may have seen or something like that, where you take human annotation behavior and you model it hmm. and apply it to a specific subdomain, and ultimately you can scale it. Um, and I think that's actually really interesting.
3: Yeah, I mean, if it's facial engagement, that that would be really interesting. I think we can start to do that now with some of what we're developing. But yeah, yeah, I'm just you know, if it's eye gaze, that's another one that we can do. Um, I you know, I wonder if there's a way that in everyday life you can have a device that captures the moments that are actually causing people stress um, or any kind of negative emotion and work backwards from there because. It, you know, it might be that you're living comfortably with autism and you don't care about this eye gaze problem. You know about it or maybe you don't know, but you're able to function everyday life happily. Whatever is causing the, the actual negative emotions, I think that's what you really want to care about. Right. So I think if there's some way you can capture that. And work backwards that's, to
0: It's so uh, amazing that you bring that up because one of my big questions coming. And the reason I mentioned at the top that I was so excited <laughs> to talk about, um, you know, the solutions and treatment and, and augmentation, all these things is because for me. If someone is vision impaired, the question is, how do I help them see again? If someone is hearing impaired, it's how can I help them hear better? If they have mobility issues, all right, is it, do I need a wheelchair, crutches, exoskeleton, whatever. And this is by no means me downplaying the challenges inherent to any of these situations. But my point is simply when it comes to autism with ASD, it is so nuanced. The challenges aren't as cut and dry as some of the other things that are out there. So. You know, how do you how do we build effective tools, AI driven or otherwise, to help these individuals navigate their disorders? And, and what do those tools look like? And, and you're, you're, you're scratching that itch right there, Alan, with that question of like, can we identify those things and work backwards? Uh, yeah. Such a, a crazy idea. Yeah. Well, I mean,
3: in a way, you know, it sounds kind of creepy when you, when you talk about recording people's lives or, you know, introducing more data. But in a way, it's kind of you want to cut back on the data, Alert the AI when they, when there can be data. When when is when should it be recording? When should it be asking questions? You know when are you potentially feeling pain and you want to ask the patient what kind of pain are you feeling? Um, you know where is it hurt? Um, how would you characterize it? You know that kind of thing while it's happening. Or you want to ask the patient sort of you know what is it that are you can like that's that's driving your confusion in this given instance? Like have you lost focus? Um, is there a toxic relationship involved?
0: Right. Um, you know. <laughs> so many variables
3: yeah yeah and, and, and it's sort of you know it this it speaks to treatment as well if you have autism perhaps um it's not a problem necessarily to live with autism and be high functioning but potentially if somebody in your life is not uh responding in the right way or, or doesn't know perhaps the intervention is for them they should know how to um right. to form a healthy relationship with somebody with autism right yeah. um, and there you might want to so there are more specific sorts of interventions you could do then.
2: Such yeah, such a great that's point. Yeah. Great. yeah, and that's particularly true for the uh, you know the adolescents and, and adults and the population now that's progressed and you know needs to be or is engaging in the workforce or schools or whatever it is. On both sides, you need to understand yeah. you know, how to how to work with each other and and obviously embrace diversity. And maybe prevent or like identify what might cause anxiety what what might cause an out like a tantrum or whatever it might be and, and figure out how to work backwards. So you don't have that happen. Yeah. The kids that we're working on are, um, are young and yeah. arguably less complex than the adolescent. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> that has to be, <laughs> <laughs> which makes our task somewhat, somewhat easier by no stretch. Of the imagination, is it easy? But it's somewhat easier. The yeah. layers of complexity haven't 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 piled on yet
0: necessarily. Yeah for sure. Uh, we're, we're coming in the home stretch. I got my eyes on the clock over here and I'm cognizant of everybody's time. Uh, I always love when we get towards the end to, to go blue sky and, and talk to me about the future, what are, you know, we've touched on little things here and there. We've posited some things of the 24 hour video surveillance that Alan brought up. It seems to be all for, uh, I'm kidding, kidding. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll cut that out. Uh, but no, let's, but, but seriously talk to me about the future. What are we excited? Uh, to see where, where do we hope to be in the next, uh, uh, and I could say five, 10 years, but also five months. Everything's moving so quickly now. What just what's on the horizon that's getting everybody really stoked and really excited and where they hope to see us with, with all of this coming down the line. Dacker, I'm going to call on you first. I want to hear you. What do you yeah, think? you know you I,
1: it, the, One of the things we know from uh, kids with ADHD And some of the impulsivity disorders is social skills really matter, right? That you just, they just have to learn how to sit in a classroom and have a conversation and, you know, and take turns when they're speaking with friends and so forth. And emotion, you know, this is the theme of our show is emotions are multidimensional and they are social. Uh, And, you know, Alan's been working on with Hume some mimicry data that just captures how well people can mimic 25, 30 different emotions in the face and voice. That to me sounds like very important information for an autistic Mm -hmm. child, right? What are the spaces of emotion that I struggle with? Maybe it's it's the emotions that encourage other people, right? Um, Is it a facial thing? Is it a vocal thing? So I think the basic science combined with uh, really accurate assessments of where you struggle, Right, which is true of anything. It's it's individualized diagnosis. Uh, I think it's going to be a a, a big opening in the space, and you know, Dennis's work is revolutionary to get it early and to get it into the hands of parents. That's a game changer. So I'm I hopeful.
0: Yeah. Alan, uh, I do want to get your thoughts on the on the brighter future of tomorrow and what's going to happen. But listening to uh, Dacker talk and bringing up again all the, the work you guys have done in, in mapping human emotion, one of the things I was thinking about earlier, you know, we've talked before in this show about accounting for geographical differences, cultural differences, age differences, all these different things. And I'm wondering, you know, when it comes to the different ways in which emotions are processed and exhibited by those with autism is that data sort of siloed into its own space for now uh, or, or is there a great value of including that in this sort of baseline uh, of human emotion and i'm just uh, I'd love to hear your perspective on that and what you think
3: i think it it should be included i think that you know if autism is a spectrum you know then i think many other uh, disorders are spectrums as well, um, mm-hmm. from healthy functioning to different kinds of, you know, uh, eccentricities or um, sort of uh, dimensions. Um, and you know, so much of that hasn't been explored. Yeah. Um, and I do think the data, when you say has it hasn't been segregated, I think the way it's been studied has been very largely segregated. Right. Um, there's dem- developmental psychology. There's emotion science, and emotion science you don't study. Um, these patient populations, you don't typically study kids. And then there's intersections. Um, but typically if you're going to do a study, it's one or the other. Um, it's either a study of, you know, healthy functioning and variation, um, or it's a study of one population and not of the overall neural diversity, which actually probably would require a lot more data, right? Um, so I think one of the really exciting directions to the future is to study neurodiversity in more of a data-driven way, um, not focus on sort of diagnostic categories being your prior, um, but focusing on symptom dimensions being extracted from data um, and understanding which dimensions are actually things you care about, which dimensions are causing people negative emotions, stress, tantrums, all of those things. Um, and working backwards from there to solve those issues. And then you have, you know, the, what are the critical moments that reveal those dimensions in life? And how can we gather data at that critical time? So we uh, lower the lift on, um, on finding the right, because essentially what the doctor is doing when they're diagnosing a patient is a form of data processing. Um, that's pretty much it. I mean, if you can lower the, and, 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 you know, that session is very expensive. It's a very expensive form of data processing. And so the fundamental problem is to make the data processing cheaper, right? (laughs) Because what Dennis' work is heading heading toward, I think we need that in every dimension of um, of clinical care. So I think that it's really important to find uh, what is the sort of lightest weight uh, intervention to gather data, um, and what is the right time to do it, um, and how do you process that um, data? I think a lot of that could potentially be working backwards from where do we experience the most negative emotions. Um, they can be, be alerted to sort of document that, um, and, and then find the root cause. Wow,
0: that's cool, amazing. Uh, and, and Dennis, you have given us a taste and told us a little bit about the things that you guys are looking ahead towards. But I always love to hear it, man. Get, what's your what's your blue sky? What's got you excited yeah,
2: these I mean, days? The said is super important. I think just riffing off that just a little bit. I think mm-hmm. absolutely, like the cannabis system for me is exciting, um, but really hopefully just the first. Um, of others that will help globalize the access to care, just like we can do here in the United States. And one thing that's like just kind of a little boring, but exciting for me anyways, is the um, the FTA and how they're starting to embrace, you know, adaptive models and utility of adaptive models in practice. Uh, they're getting there. And I think in the next five years, they'll be completely there and there'll be these, these scenarios in which you have with them established a predetermined a predetermined change control plan that enables you to adapt your algorithm as you go effectively and securely and safely but make those changes without huge interruptions to the access to that new improved model by the, mm. by the stakeholders and of course all of that with the United States has to be covered by insurance and we can't we, you know we cannot be charging our our families out of pocket for these for these kinds of solutions. But I do think like making the data and decision process of more affordable and scalable is, is, is what's going to be happening really exciting yeah. in the, next, yeah. the next two years, really, with Cognola and DX. But in the next five years, globalization of the same sort of solutions to countries where there isn't enough infrastructure, making sure that we address problems in Bangladesh and the Philippines and other low-middle-income countries so that they can have, the same sort of services that we can get here. And I think it's through these games and, and, and mobile-based solutions that have embedded AI that we can actually achieve that goal, where we're getting complete diversity inclusion. We understand how the models perform across all the demographics you can think of. And it's. Really, I think, through the, again, through, through deployment of systems like this, it's going to just increasingly happen in the next two, three, maybe five years, where we start to realize a lot of the potential of mobile AI in
0: Else. Wow. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much, guys. We're 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 over time. It pains me to say it. I gotta wrap things up. Pardon me. I got to wrap things up. But before we go, I got to thank our guest, Dennis. Uh, you've been so generous with your time. It means a lot to us, man. Thank you so much and, and keep up all the amazing work. So awesome to have you here. Uh, co-host for life, Dacker, your voice and insights are like a warm blanket for me. Uh, and our listeners agree. Thank you so much for stopping by and hanging out with us again, Decker. I love seeing you every time, man. Uh, Alan, another great episode, sir. Always a pleasure. Thank you to you. And, and of course, uh you, that's right. You, the listener, we appreciate you most of all. Thank you for spending all of your time with us today uh, or however much time you spent. I don't know, whatever it is, the fact that you're hearing this part, it means you made it to the end and that means a lot to me. Uh, so thank you so much for hanging out with us. Uh, we try our best to pack a lot and do a small package. So if there's a question I missed or something you want to know more about, let us know. Just shoot us a question over at the feelings lab at hume.com. <clears throat> A I T H E F E E L I N G S L A B at hume h-u-m-e dot a i i can't wait to see what you got and hey if you really enjoyed today's episode and you're feeling saucy go ahead and throw us a five-star rating on itunes couldn't hurt i'm actually not a hundred percent sure it helps either but i know it couldn't hurt so go ahead send us a review uh that's gonna do it we'll be back next week with a new guest a new topic and a bunch of new questions until then farewell for now my friends from the feelings lab i'm matt forte thanks again everybody and please stay safe out there